welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello. Throughout their history, Americans have found themselves fighting unexpected enemies, foes from different cultural backgrounds who fought in unfamiliar ways and against whom they were unprepared to fight. In the new book, The Other Face of Battle, a group of military historians has put together three exemplars of such fights, woven together with an analysis of the discontinuity and continuity of the way that Americans have waged such wars. With me to talk about The Other Face of Battle are three of its four co-authors. They are David Silby, Adjunct Associate Professor and Associate Director of Cornell in Washington, David Preston, General Mark W. Clark, Distinguished Chair of History at the Citadel, and Wayne Lee, Bruce W. Carney, Distinguished Professor of History at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Gentlemen, thank you for being joining his, us on Historically Thinking. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Al. Wayne Lee, how did this uh, book come about? Um, how did you uh, manage to herd these cats into uh, putting together this uh, this collection? And why does it work together so well uh, when there are four different people writing it? Yeah, it was uh, it was an idea I've had for a, a really long time. Uh, I think we're going to end up talking about John Keegan in a few minutes, but his iconic collection of three British battles was a, a, something that we have all had to read as historians, uh, military historians for a long time and continue to teach because of its influence on the field. But it was always really limited by the fact that it was talking about British against people very much like them, uh, whether French or German enemies. And as a world historian, world military historian, I was interested in the problem of what happens when two completely different kinds of societies clash and how that influences the experience of combat in particular. Not just whether one side is better than the other or there's some sort of hierarchy of more advanced or less advanced, but that the experience of combat, that thing that Keegan was most interested in, how is that changed by that experience of war between cultures? And as a, again, as a world historian, the, I'd had this idea for a long time, and I thought of it as a book that I wanted to write. Um, but as I, as we say in the preface, um, it's harder and harder to be to be a military historian with any credibility who is not a true expert in everything it is about the subject they're writing, because you can't just write about the combats. You need to understand the peoples and their histories and their contexts, and so. The deeper I got into trying to think about how to do this book by myself, the more I had to realize that, in honesty, I needed to engage with other experts. And so I started thinking about what would be good examples and who would be good authors for those examples. And honestly, I started with David Preston because, in my mind, this book had always included Monongahela as an example. Uh, and at one time, I thought I had the expertise to write that chapter because of the work I've done in Native American warfare. Uh, but when David Preston's book on Monongahela came out, it became an obvious go-to to ask him to step in. Um, and then for the other two case studies, uh, David Silby, I knew David Silby from graduate school and I knew his work on the Philippines. And that seemed a really important case study because it becomes a crucial turning point in American history in terms of the role of the American army and the American state as an imperial power, uh, and also the setting a, a crucial sort of 
lodestone for the beginning of American thinking about counterinsurgency. And then the real puzzle uh, in terms of structuring the book was, do we do Vietnam? Or do we leap straight into the modern uh, wars on terror? Uh, and not, but also not try to do both because then the book becomes too long and unwieldy. Uh, and so I started quizzing my friends who I know who work in professional military education uh, and found Tony Carlson, who'd been collecting already official interviews for a case study of a small unit action in Afghanistan. And after talking about what he had already found, uh, it seemed like a perfect fit. Mm -hmm. And the rest of it was managing, as you said, the herd of cats uh, and trying to make this thing cohere. Uh, and we all agreed. One of the things that scholars do all the time is we contribute chapters to anthologies. And we didn't want to do that. We wanted to write a coherent book that as much as it was possible had a single voice and a single style of organization between the chapters. No matter how hard a volume editor of an anthology tries you can't make the individual chapters match each other in content or even sometimes in organization. And so that was part of my role was to, to dictate structure mm -hmm. um, and then to try to blend the chapters together with the interludes between them and the introduction. So, And you have a very um, rote, directed structure for each of the case studies, which makes them very useful as case studies, too. Uh, and, right. and enables the reader to quickly compare. I mean, this is a book to be used by professionals, uh, military professionals as well, I, I take it. It is certainly our hope that it would fit easily into a professional military education curriculum. We're going to, for the rest of the podcast, let's call that PME. That's what we all call it, professional mm -hmm. military education at various levels. Yeah, we, don't, we don't allow that kind of talk on this podcast. Oh. <laughs> we, we can't, I don't, not, no more explicit ratings. I mean, you know, I had, I had to use doubling the discourse was last week. We can't do that again. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but we also designed it very much to fit into an American military history curriculum just in general. I mean, this, one of the things that occurred in the early iteration of this book in my conception of it was we, I moved it from a world history to an American history, mm -hmm. uh, realizing that too big a lens would be you just couldn't do enough case studies in any reasonable scope. But within the experience of American military history, we could cover the sweep and the technological changes involved, the sociological changes involved in the way Americans recruit and train their armies. Uh, but also, as you as you as we, I'm sure we'll talk about also in the ways that the institutional army reacted to each of these experiences, that we could talk about the experiences going in and then the learning or failure to learn in the army coming out of these experiences. Yeah. It's like there's, there's moments uh, in the pot when I'm preparing for a podcast and I can say to myself, geez, I thought the historian studied change over time. Uh, I thought we believed in like change, you know, not like, but then you encounter something. We'll get to that the way that the army has dealt with such things. And you just begin to see continuities, which you didn't really expect, at least we'll, 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 we'll talk about that. Um, because I think, you know, for the eight people listening who are still interested in institutional history, there's a lot of institution. There's some really interesting things about institutional history that you can find out by reading about these military uh, histor historical uh, matters. Um, I'm, I'm curious, just a few more uh, things on the mechanics. So David, I mean, as, as was David Preston, as was said, you wrote this fantastic book on Braddock's Massacre or the Battle of the Monongahela, as we, you've now taught us to call it. Um, you, did, you didn't, however, uh, since I've read both your, the chapter in the book closely and also your original book closely, you didn't just sort of cut down 
fanatically to try to make the work. How did you how did you break down what you've already done in great detail and then put it into this chapter? How did that work? That's a great question. I I does that mean that you hadn't thought of an answer to it? Because <laughs> 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 that's usually what it is. Okay. I think as as Wayne uh, mentioned earlier, we all of us were thinking about possible rubrics for these chapters and how they they would be structured. And a lot of those, those rubrics do take their inspiration from the way that, that John Keegan organized some of his chapters. And um, I also wanted in each of these, um, these, these battle sections to, to be able to, to, put the reader in, in the shoes of, of a particular person. And that's the reason why, for example, I, I begin the Monongahela chapter with, with um, Thomas Gage and, and allowing the reader to, to experience his immersion into the other face of battle as this, this unexpected fight unfolds before him um, in the same way in the in the introduction we have this this really wonderful scene from 1637 when john underhill confronts a a pequot force and he and his soldiers form up in the traditional line of battle in the open field and they're met with laughter from the the pequots and i i love that 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 opening scene because it really captures in, in a fundamental way, the, the other face of battle and what that's, what that's about. Mm-hmm. Um, let's do some definitions first. Um, it's for those of us who don't uh, know these things, um, you talk about asymmetric warfare. I think it's been mentioned already. What is, if, what is asymmetric warfare and what's symmetric warfare for that matter? Um, David Silby, do you want to take a stab at that? We haven't heard from you yet. Yeah, absolutely, and and uh, uh, and I think also hand it over to Wayne in a second because I know he has some thoughts on it. I think uh, asymmetric and symmetric warfare has been something that, uh, especially the U.S. military, has been arguing about and discussing for quite a while, and military historians as well. Um, and so there may be as many definitions of of what uh, asymmetric and symmetric are as there are people talking about it. Um, and that's true of culture, uh, as well. But, but when I was thinking about it, um, I, I tended to think about it, um, as being a symmetric warfare being between combatants that are roughly matched on a technological level, on an economic level, um, in a demographic and popular level that, that we sort of recognize them as being on the same, uh, basic, um, level of achievement in uh, in terms of warfare, and I'm and I'm I'm phrasing that sort of awkwardly because I'm trying to stay away from one of the ways it's been defined, which is Wayne hinted at, which is civilized versus savage, um, and I think that's very that sort of makes a very sort of judgmental kind of thing. But so I think of symmetrical warfare as as what we were talking about earlier: the British versus the French, the British versus the Germans. D-Day, Pearl Harbor, things like that, um, whereas asymmetric warfare is between uh, what we would think of as much more advanced, and here's that judgment call again, advanced technological nations 
um, or combatants and and combatants that are much less uh, much less advanced. The presumption in this discussion has always, I think, been that because one side has an advantage technologically over the other, that they should inevitably win. Um, and you hear that about Vietnam at times. We should have won in Vietnam because we were stronger, we were more advanced, we were better, and and so the shock becomes why didn't and why didn't the U.S. win? Um, and so I think it's interesting because unpacking that discussion about asymmetric versus symmetric unpacks a sort of moral discussion about how to fight warfare, how to understand warfare, and how to approach warfare. Okay, let me um, try to push back on some of the uh, just for sake of of, of clarifying. Um, is that the Boer War, British versus the Boers, is that asymmetric or symmetric? Wow, we can we can go through uh, we can go through. I mean, all the I, I'm just I'm kind of curious. The, I mean, I what I know what I know best. Say like the backcountry right. of South Carolina, right? Right. That so, but that's pretty but symmetrical to me. See, that's that's where some of the interesting stuff comes in because that's where you start to get into the moral judgment, which is the British thought of the Boer War as asymmetric, at least at first, even though, as you point out, the Boers used a level of, of weapons technology at the individual soldier level. You want to be careful about starting mm-hmm. to think about it higher than that. That was pretty close to, to matching it. But because the British saw them as inferior combatants, um, uh, as an as an inferior group, they treated that as if they were fighting a, fighting a lesser enemy. Um, and you can you can pull examples like that out all over the place. I think of I'm reading a biography of John Moses Browning at the moment, which is which is really good. Um, and he talks about how at um, at Little Bighorn, the attacking Native Americans were actually equipped with a fairly high level of uh, of technology, better than the than the U.S. Uh, the U.S. cavalry, and even to bring it around to the Philippines, as I as I point out in that chapter on the Philippines, the Filipino army had what would probably be described as better individual weapons mm-hmm. than um, than the U.S. soldiers did. And so, I think your your question is a good one in the sense that 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 underlying moral judgment um, is really kind of imperialist in the sense that it makes makes a distinction between people who fight the right way and people who fight the wrong way, um, independent of what their technology level actually is. Well, let me, let me jump in here too and say, I want to emphasize very much that the premise of the book is not symmetrical versus asymmetrical. The premise Mm -hmm. of the book is intercultural combat. Well, let's talk about that. Very often the intercultural combat is asymmetrical, but it is not always. Mm-hmm. So, so we could, in theory, have done a chapter on the U.S. war in the Pacific against Japan, mm-hmm. which would be highly symmetrical, but highly intercultural as well. So intracultural versus intercultural. What, 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 how are you distinguishing that in term, in combat and, and military? Right. Well, so, you know, there's the perhaps unfortunate real reality is that the key paradigm in the way much of history is done is refers to Europe or, or the West as a single cultural sphere. And so the combat that occurs within that cultural sphere is intracultural. It is within the same broader cultural sphere. And so each of our each of our case studies, the uh, British slash American forces at Monongahela versus uh, primarily Indians, although certainly with the French in, in alliance and in, in, in present, 
uh, U.S. forces against Filipinos in, in 1899, and then um, U.S. forces and NATO forces against uh, Afghans in 2010. So each of those is between combats between cultural spheres. And so the question that we wanted to explore is, when you go into combat, when an individual, as David Preston was emphasizing earlier on, what is the sort of vision, the point of view of the individual soldier? When you are experiencing combat, in what ways is that experience affected, changed, dramatic, uh, dramatized, enhanced, lessened by the fact that your opponent has a completely different set of expectations about what combat is and about what combat means, about what victory is? Uh, and even I like to emphasize sometimes even the notions of what sounds and noises are appropriate for an individual in combat. Mm-hmm. You know, the, 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 the yells of Indians is something strange and alien to the ears of British. The, the, the way Americans cry out and communicate with each other in combat in 2010 seems weird and discordant to the Taliban. So there are ways in which things that we consider extremely normal, um, when dramatized in the extremity of combat, become are alien to a cultural other. And we wanted to explore that experience. And inevitably, in exploring that intercultural experience, we end up encountering the asymmetric experience, which is usually defined as technological, uh, but can also be um, technique-based. It's just the techniques are very different. Thus, the Boer War, where the technological levels are relatively similar, but the techniques are different. Mm-hmm. Even with, with or without the moral judgment that David Silby was talking about, which is absolutely true, the techniques can be different whether they're judged uh, as being bad, morally bad or not. The techniques are different. And thus, that will then in turn, that asymmetry will compound intercultural quality of the experience. One of, and one of my favorite philosophers of science technology would point out that um, technique is actually a form of technology, techne, technique. And it's in technique um, that we see the ways in which technology is dependent upon culture. I'm not going to go on. I mean, people listen to podcasts. have heard me, you know, yammer on about this before, but um, you know, there's sometimes your culture just isn't ready for the technology, even though you've theoretically thought it through, you've got it, you've got the steam engine in, in, in uh, Hellenistic Alexandria, but there's the culture's not there. It just d- despite the theory, the theory being there, the science is there, but the culture's not there. And we can go on lots of other ways. Technique is so t- tied into cultures. Let's, let's get to some of these examples. Oh, well, before we get to the examples, we've referenced John Keegan. Why the other face of battle? Could you explain uh, again a little bit more of, of what Keegan did in the face of the battle and why that was, why even non-military historians like myself had to read him at some point during graduate school? Yes, one, my mentor in grad school often talked about the extraordinary influence of Keegan's book, in particular amongst non-military historians, because it became the one military history book that, that yeah. non-military historians read. And the reason was, is it hit the streets in, in the middle of the 70s at a time when people who were doing history, both either professionally or, or as amateurs, as, as interested people, were beginning to refocus their attention on the, the experiences of ordinary folk and you know, what we called social history. And yeah. there were two ways to get at social history. One was, what is the human experience of whatever it is you're trying to describe? The human experience of farming, the human experience of crime, uh, the human experience, in Keegan's case, of combat. And the other question was, 
who are all these humans? You mean, well, how much money do they have? You know, where do they come from? How do they get into the army? But what Keegan did was was beautifully encapsulate those human experiences at those three famous battles in British history, Agincourt, Waterloo, and the Somme. So he had the he had the trifecta, if you will, of of great prose, really famous case studies in British history, and tapping into that desire to understand human experience. He could weave together all these little tidbits that he had picked up, which still terrify undergraduates today, like a a 75 caliber musket ball. If it hits your best friend's face next to you, you're going to be wounded by his jawbone. Things like that. That that is actually, those are the things, or his teeth. You know, the teeth are like grenades, you know, in the the line of battle at Waterloo. And he's, each of those case studies, uh, diverse as they are in one sense, because one's medieval, one's Napoleonic, and one's World War I. Each of them benefited from a, a deluge, a relative deluge of primary sources. I mean, Agincourt, I mean, it's medieval, so the deluge is small, but even, you know, if you had to pick a medieval Careful. battle, that would be yeah, the yeah, one you yeah. pick. Yeah, exactly. Right? And, and Waterloo, uh, similarly, in part because it was so famous, yeah. created a, a relative uh, deluge of primary source accounts from soldiers, not just from officers. Mm-hmm. And so I, he was able to string these things together in a, in a particularly vivid way. And one of the things he did was use the method that David Preston was hinting at earlier uh, was to divide into paired combatant types that within each chapter, one of his techniques was to say, all right, what happens when cavalry runs into infantry? What happens when artillery is bombarding infantry? What happens when infantry is charging machine guns? And so those each of those comparisons allowed him to integrate into his primary source analysis, the actual soldier's descriptions, he could integrate what I often call the physics of the battlefield, that he could fill in by not speculation, but by understanding the nature of the weapons, the nature of the, the ground. Uh, it's, it's not speculation, it's hard data, in a sense. Uh, one of his most famous ways of doing this was to talk about, you know, there's a passage in, in one of his case studies where supposedly the, the bodies stacked up you know, the, the, they were packed so tight that the bodies would stack up. And Keegan used um, imagery of the way bodies are slumped together in footage from Holocaust uh, concentration camp liberation footage to say that bodies don't do that. Mm-hmm. They don't stack up that. They, they just they, they'll slump into mounds. And although a horrifying image, it was nonetheless a real description. And so we wanted to do the same thing, which was to take our three case studies truly flesh them out as much as possible with these prim- primary source soldiers' statements, soldiers' accounts, soldiers' viewpoints, and combine that with the physics of the battlefield through these paired combatant types. And in having the paired combatant types, it would emphasize the asymmetry and intercultularity of the, com- the combatants. To use one of the more dramatic examples from the Makwan chapter in Afghanistan, Miklix versus IEDs. The, these explosive charges designed to clear minefields laid by the Soviets. That's where Miklix came from. It's a Cold War weapons technology from a highly symmetrical um, system of, of contention being now being used against improvised explosive devices laid by guerrillas, um, but also in belts, also designed to impede movement. You know, there's, there's, there's a similarity of technique to a Soviet Cold War minefield in a way that the, you know, the inventors of the Miklik never even imagined. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, pairing these techniques and then exploring what it's like to be in the middle of that, 
Mm-hmm. It's I can tell you from personal experience, it is a dramatic moment when a Miklik blows up because it is a lot of explosives going off all at the same time. And because it's designed to create an overpressure wave that makes enough downward forcing pressure from the explosive uh, blast wave, it's designed to set off anti-tank mines. Anti-tank mines require several hundred pounds of pressure to set off. If you walk across an anti-tank mine, you will not set it off. So you need, it's designed as a Cold War weapon. It was designed to defeat Soviet anti-tank mines. So you need a massive pressure wave. You don't need a massive pressure wave to set off IEDs. They're, just, they're designed to go off when people get near them. And so, you, again, you have this, this kind of weird asymmetry where you get, you're generating massive, unnecessary, in one sense, pressure wave. Um, and you're then experiencing that as a soldier who, who detonates it. You're experiencing that as a Taliban guerrilla who's in the vicinity, and as, and as Tony describes in his chapter, to... Uh, Taliban insurgents who ran to investigate what was going on were in the vicinity when that Miklik went off. And of course, their bodies and, and parts of their bodies are flying well up into the sky, again, generating an experience for the American soldiers who witnessed that mm-hmm. and who described that experience for us in their could, documents. Could I, could I jump David in for a second? It. I mean, I think, yeah. I think everything Wayne has said is absolutely correct. I, w- I, would, add, I would add two things. One is one of the interesting things is that military history as an academic subspecialty is actually a lot younger than we think. People have done military history for a very long time, but there haven't been the kind of graduate degree programs in universities training military historians really until the 50s and 60s in the United States. Um, and so one of the things that happened is it's actually quite a young subspecialty, and it was sort of looking for a foundational work in some sense. And when Keegan's book comes along in 1976, and it's enormously popular with non-military historians, it's a really good moment for military historians to say, this is what we do. Hmm. This is this is how we are joining in with the regular part um, uh, of history. So there's a bit of invented tradition going on around Keegan's book and around military history, as, as Eric Hobsbawm would put it, in that, that it's sort of some of its fame is created because it came along at the moment that this discipline needed something uh, to, I think, to define itself. And then the other thing, Wayne's, one of the fascinating things for me as a scholar was actually thinking about what Wayne was just talking about, this ground level encounter about between soldiers on both sides changes how you think what's going on in the battle itself. And for me, one of the things I noticed about the Battle of Manila is there's a difference between what's going on and what both sides perceive is going on. And because of that difference can get quite substantial, it changes not only what they then do on the battlefield, but how the battle is actually is actually remembered. And you wouldn't catch that unless you look at the very sort of ground level experience of the actual soldiers. Well, let's get on to two of the case studies. I want to spend about 10 minutes on each. Um, So uh, David Preston, Battle of the Monongahela, um, known to generations of Americans as Braddock's defeat. Um, That seems significant that we think of it that way. Um, As you've demonstrated to us, just about everything we thought we knew about is wrong. Um, Where should we begin in this sort of, uh, in correcting our wrongness and, and thinking about it? Well, let, let me first explain a little bit about what these, uh, in, in, in the, the big picture, what these case studies all illustrate. The Monongahela is a 
is, is, is a classic case of a conventional army that, that suffers catastrophic defeat at the hands of irregulars. Manila, the Battle of Manila is, is a, an example of a conventional army that, that decisively wins a, a battlefield victory, but then faces, as a, as a result, uh, a, a grueling insurgency that lasts for, for years beyond the battle and an unexpected insurgency at that. And then our, our last case study, Operation Dragon Strike, is, uh, is really illustrative of, of where we are right now in Afghanistan, um, a conventional army with, with uh, mirror image allies that have every advantage and yet cannot translate those advantages into strategic success. So I just wanted to mention that as as, uh, as a preface to mm. uh, the section on on Monongahela, and I, I think I'll return back to Thomas Gage, and um, and and use him to to get us into the, the story of of Monongahela. You know, here was a, a an officer who had served for decades in the British Army, and had had seen some campaigning experience in the Low Countries um, prior to 1755. He had also um, been involved in the suppression of the Jacobite rising in the 1740s. And yet when, when Gage and other British officers and soldiers come to America in Braddock's expedition in 1755, they're faced with a, a campaign and an experience and, and, and in the end, a, a battle with which they have um, very little means of, of, of coping or processing. Um, the, 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 the campaign begins in, in Alexandria, Virginia in um, April of 1755. It has a, a fairly straightforward objective. Um, Braddock's army of, of roughly about 2,600 personnel, they're going to go across the mountains and capture the French Fort Duquesne with uh, a conventional siege artillery train. And um, what, they, what they encounter in, in, in the first exposure to the, the other face of battle is, is just the foreign landscape. Uh, the, the landscape itself becomes part of the way that they imagine and experience the, the enemy, ultimately. Um, one of the things that I, I brought out even more powerfully in, in this section than I did in my, in my book was the, the ways that British regulars who had no experience fighting against Native Americans, uh, at least in, 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 in Braddock's force, these soldiers begin to imbibe stories about Native American warfare and its practices from their American counterparts, the provincial soldiers who were, who were part of, of Braddock's expedition. And so that, that, that forms kind of the, the, the first mental image of what might happen if these regular troops have to encounter 
Native Americans. And during the march, uh, which is which is very arduous and exhaustive uh, because of the labor involved in, in building a road, uh, British soldiers do begin to encounter um, Native American scouts who are studying the, the British column as it's, as it's advancing over the mountains. Uh, occasionally, these Native American um, allies of the, of the French will, will kill isolated uh, teamsters or civilians or soldiers who are out in the woods looking for horses, stray horses, etc., uh, they, they even encounter at one point in the march um, warning signs that Native Americans have scrawled on, on trees, which is a very, it's a, it's a, it's a classic custom in, in 18th century uh, Native war, warfare in the East. Um, and so again, these, these things really build this, this, um, this sense of, of uh, the unknown in the, the regulars' minds. And the, um, the, the, the real drama of Monongahela is that it's, um, it, it's a battle that occurs in just such a completely unexpected fashion. The British felt that um, after they had successfully crossed the Monongahela River, which they, they believed was the, the most likely, the most logical place where an enemy force would ambush them. So again, that's their way of, of thinking about, about tactics. Um, they, they didn't expect that they would face a battle right after getting over this, this, this important obstacle. And so the Monongahela occurs at the, the wrong time in every way, in terms of the terrain, in terms of the psychology of the British soldiers, going from a moment of, of triumph, of, of a sense of almost palpable victory to uh, facing an, an unexpected opponent. And this battle unfolds with such rapidity that um, it, it really just is, is, is a, a horrifying experience for these British soldiers. One of my favorite uh, illustrations is a, uh, a private soldier in one of Braddock's regiments, the 44th Regiment. His name is Duncan Cameron. And this, uh, this soldier was, uh, he's an enlisted soldier who, who had experienced some of the, the bloodiest battles of, of mid 18th century warfare uh, in, in Europe. And he survives the Monongahela and he writes in his his um, his memoir that this battle was was the was the most horrifying of of all that he had encountered, and it, it's it's a very striking statement given the the other horrors that he's experienced in Europe. But what made the Monongahela so horrifying, and why is it why is it such a uh, a, a great example of the other face of battle. So the British are in a, a column formation and they, they soon find themselves attacked on the front by uh, primarily the, the, the French and Canadian forces. 
but the battle really um, starts to to go against them as as Native Americans begin to flank the column, and they they destroy the the flanking British flanking parties that are out there, and in in a, in a very quick way. The, the native warriors are, are driving for the rear of, of the British column before General Braddock can even figure out what's happening to his front. And the experience of, of fighting this, this very mobile and especially invisible enemy is one that, that just, the British have no means of, of, um, of, of coping with this. They gain their their moral strength as soldiers through being in, in massed formations and being able to, to wield the immense firepower represented by, say, a, a company of 100 soldiers firing brown best muskets with 69 caliber balls. Nobody wants to be on the end of that. It's, it's a very devastating form of, of um, an effective way of using those, those muskets. But what they face with these Native American opponents is an invisible enemy and one that, that just completely terrifies them, uh, beginning with the, the Native Americans' war cries. And th- as Wayne was alluding to earlier, this is a, a, a sound of, of a culture that these British soldiers just have no way of, of, of comprehending. Some of these soldiers had been at, at, at Culloden, like Thomas Gage. They had, they had, they had seen um, massed Highlander charges or Jacobite charges, but many British accounts of the Monongahela state that, that there was something that was, that was incredibly uh, disheartening. And uh, they, they described these, these native war cries as, as a kind of murderous cry. And that, that term even suggests the, the, the type of, of, of fear that they, they associate with, with the sound of this cry, which magnifies, of course, the numbers of their invisible opponent. And that's one of the ways that, that they were initially disarmed. Um, secondly, Native Americans, by virtue of their cultural practice, of, of hunting with smoothbore muskets, they had, they had uh, incredible marksmanship and they specifically targeted officers knowing that these, these officers were, were key to the, the command and control of, of any 18th century European force. And so that's, that's another way that natives sowed disorganization and terror in the British ranks and made it impossible for the British to, to rally or, or become uh, organized in, in, in any way. And to, to accentuate this terror, natives would, would sometimes fall upon individual soldiers. There's um, one of my favorite examples. It's a, it's a newspaper account that I found late in my research of um, a, a British officer, a company commander, who um, was, was felled early in the battle 
by by native fire and he lay wounded on the ground and this um this newspaper account relates how native warriors came in upon the wounded officer and either with with war clubs or tomahawks killed him in in plain sight of his enlisted soldiers and 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 scalped him and then ran back into the um the the woods so all in all the the best way to summarize Monongahela is this was a, a roughly about a four-hour battle in which two out of every three British soldiers who crossed the Monongahela were killed or wounded in that space of time. And the experience for the enlisted soldiers is... is um, I mean, it's it's all you, you almost sympathize with these with these men who had to fight with with um, with with very little officer leadership and basically surrounded by a pall of smoke in which they they couldn't see their their enemies at all, um, and, and yet knowing in their minds that if if they sur- tried to surrender, they might face death by tomahawks or war clubs or perhaps uh, torture. And um, and it really became, in the end, a, a case of the army disintegrating and um, an every man for himself type of, of scenario. Um, so, David, what was the legacy of the Monongahela and how long did it last? I mean, there are several different legacies, I think. We have to distinguish between them. So I think that immediately the, the the battle swung the 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 pendulum in in America over to the the French and their native allies, and in this case, success begets success. Uh, Monongahela inspired many many more native allies to to join the French in future campaigns, which they did in 1756 and 57. And for their part, the French um, gained an immense advantage by the capture of General Braddock's artillery train, which they use against other British forts in North America, again in 1756 and 57. Uh, so it, it, it really changes the, the, the whole strategic balance in North America and it helps to cement in in British minds a, a sense that this war must be a total war that involves the destruction of Canada. So in that sense, Monongahela, it, it really underscores the ultimate objective in this, this new British war that they face, which is the, the conquest of Canada not just the, the taking of a, a few forts in disputed areas, which is what the, the original uh, purpose of these, of these British expeditions was in 1755. Uh, in the long term, one of the things that, that we draw out in, uh, in the Monongahela section and also in, in the, the interlude is how, how these types of, of, of catastrophic battles like Monongahela or St. Clair's defeat in 1791, 
um, how how we 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 see number one um, repetitive patterns. Uh, in, in 1791, the United States Army, in terms of of just numbers, faces its its worst defeat. Saint Clair's defeat, or the Battle of the of the of the Wabash, and it also introduces this element of unlearning that uh, that, that our book really a- accentuates. Despite having the the clear lesson and and the the long memory of Monongahela, the United States Army essentially commits many of the same mistakes, uh, tactically operationally and and psychologically as they face yet another native american opponent on the ohio frontier and then when anthony wayne wins at the battle of fallen timbers he does so by almost repeating move for move um the british general forbes forbes uh, campaign of 1758 right i mean i mean slow build up your logistics base fort to fort but then also combined arms training um you know teaching teaching musketry but also the bayonet can overcome the tomahawk yeah that's that's a great point or i i could also add on there um the the example of um of colonel henry bouquet mm-hmm. during the time of of the so-called pontiac's war um and and again that 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 illustrates how so much of of the of the learning involved in fighting these irregular wars or unconventional conflicts oftentimes the 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 learning does not get distilled into doctrine or uh standard standard operating procedures in in the army um Right, so we're going to jump forward to the the Philippines and to Manila, sure. which comes after uh, forty years more of fighting on the plains against um, in asymmetrical well, in, in in this intercultural uh, warfare. Uh, and yet, the amazing thing is, I had not realized is that no one had written a manual about this. Um, no, this was just this was sort of on the lived DNA of these guys who had some of them had been major generals and had to go back to being a captain or a major or whatever. But they they had gone from the they had been running divisions and now they're going back to running companies. So they know every level of the military, but they don't pass on these lessons. Can you talk about that, David Silby? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the you're absolutely right is one of the fascinating things is how experienced the military, the U.S. military that went out to the Philippines was in terms of uh, what we've been talking about as asymmetric warfare, but also intercultural uh, intercultural warfare. The problem was that, um, as with Native Americans, what they perceived about the fighting was also shaped by their racial attitude. So when they went out to the Philippines, they brought with them all of that sort of domestic sense of racism and a perception of the enemy that they was fighting that shaped um, what was going on. And, and you can sort of see that most clearly when the American army gets out to Manila in, uh, 18, uh, in 1898 and 99, um, they're, they're actually facing two enemies uh, at the start. There's a Spanish army in Manila and then um, a Filipino army uh, that has uh, been built up partly by the U.S., um, outside of it. And and the, the Americans very clearly think of the Spanish as the real enemy or the real 
uh, military force. And the Filipinos, who are the, technically our allies, are sort of a lesser um, uh, a lesser force. And they, they weren't particularly shy about explaining that uh, to the Filipinos. So there's this, this sort of fascinating disjuncture between what we know, but also what we believe about our enemy. And that shapes um, what's ha- what happens uh, at the Battle of Manila, um, which is actually quite a substantially conventional battle. It's, you know, the Filipinos have spent the months that they've been besieging the United States Army in, in Manila, building up a trench system that that looks very much like what we might see at Petersburg uh, in 1864-65, what we might see in the early days of World War I. Um, and it, the U.S. Army has to launch massive frontal assaults against that trend, defended trench system. You know, and, and that... Those assaults, which start uh, sort of the, the morning of the battle, February 5th uh, of 1899, those assaults really ring to me the difference between what was actually going on and what they perceived was going on. Because all of those Civil War veterans that you mentioned, you know, a lot of the commanding generals were had fought in the Civil War, knew what launching a frontal assault against a defended position was like. I mean, they had been at Petersburg. They had been at the crater. They had been at places like Fredericksburg um, and Gettysburg, where massive frontal assaults were just cut to pieces. And yet the morning of February 5th, they're very willing to send their forces in against on a frontal assault because the Filipinos are inferior soldiers. Why? Because they're not white at least partly, they're not white. They're that the sort of racial perception that the Americans have drives the tactics they use and makes them willing to take a risk that they'd never take against a Western foe because they, they perceive the Filipinos as, as inferior, uh, inferior soldiers and inferior fighters. And the lesson is, the interesting thing is, the lesson is that it works. You know, they were right. The Filipinos were inferior soldiers for all sorts of reasons we can talk about if you want, but they were inferior soldiers. And so these frontal assaults worked and just shattered the Filipino defenses. And the battle, this conventional battle, turns into a rout um, because the Filipinos can't stand up against these, against the American frontal assaults. And, and the sort of the lessons that the Americans take from this, one is that the Filipinos can always be attacked frontally. Anytime they hold a position, the Americans just launch a a full frontal assault. And the second lesson, which is a much more dangerous one to learn, is that the Filipinos can't fight, period. Not that they can't fight in this way or that they're not ready to fight with this particular set of tactics, but that they can't fight, period. And so when the Filipinos shift to a much more insurgent style of warfare, the Americans are shocked because the Philippines Filipinos aren't supposed to be able to fight. And, and yet here they are, they're still resisting. They're, they're inferior people, they're inferior soldiers. How can they still manage this kind of kind of insurgency? And it takes the US quite a long time to figure out how to react to that or that they have to react to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the, eventually they figure it out and they that's when the knowledge that they gain from fighting Native Americans in the U.S. West come comes into play, mm-hmm. but but it's that difference between what they 
think is going on and what is actually going on that causes the U.S. really serious problems, not just in the Philippines, but I think later on in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. If I can chime in here for just a second, one of the one of the little ironies here is that the non-institutional, the relatively uninstitutionalized army of the 19th century remembers its lessons from those irregular and intercultural wars better than the fully institutionalized and professionalized army of the 20th century. In one sense, the smaller officer corps, the very long service officer corps of the 19th century transmits those lessons amongst themselves. They, they remember things and they talk to each other and they train each other. I mean, yes, there are schools and yes, there is some doctrine primarily derived from the European experience. But the, what we called in the book, the lore of the Indian Wars is embedded in the experience of the officer corps. When the officer corps is being trained in the 20th century, they, they tend to forget that. Could we accentuate that even? I, I was thinking, reading the book, I was thinking, trying to compare this to symmetrical warfare, the ways in which, um, well, because Winfield Scott lived forever um, <laughs> and had been in command when he was a very young man in the War of 1812, the ways in which lessons learned from the War of 1812 live all the way into the officer corps of the Civil War. Um, you can see the ways in which in the Mexican War and then again the Civil War, all these guys are determined not to repeat the mistakes with volunteer generals, but also with volunteer militia, poorly trained volunteer militia, uh, frontal assaults. Well, I mean, lots of other things that there that there's been this this culture, and likewise, all that culture of asymmetric warfare, just as you said, is also passed on. Both of those things are passed on, even without a command and general staff school, which is which is a shock. And, and, I mean, how could that happen? Yeah, let, but let's add, let let's highlight something about that because I think in that answers lies an answer to your question, which is one of the important things about culture and about this culture is that it's universal. Mm-hmm. The officers of the post Civil War generation don't have to talk about it um, at great length with each other or write articles analyzing it or publicizing because they all know it. They all know the same thing. Now, as as Wayne's point out, they do talk about it. But one of the one of the things about culture is it tends to be invisible to the people who are living within it. They don't see it as a separate thing that that they have to right. um, that they have to talk about. So if you, it's interesting if you look at what they're writing about in the post Civil War era. It's never about this. Uh, it's almost never about this insurgent warfare. What they're doing, it's about new things coming in from Europe because they're trying to transmit that information mm-hmm. around. Whereas with the lore, as Wayne is, as Wayne has put it, well, is, is that that culture is so universal that they they don't have to talk about it with each other mm-hmm. that much. Um, yeah. You know, and so it's it's the water in which they swim to to sort of steal a Maoist um, mm-hmm. remark and. It's fascinating for me to look at it. This doesn't come in, in the, necessarily in the chapter, but um, in the book later on, when when they start sort of when the Filipinos are fighting this insurgent warfare, the the American officers are like, "Oh hell, we know what to do." Mm-hmm. You know these these folks are these. They start calling the Filipinos braves, and they start talking about them as as sort of uh, as Indians because they're deliberately invoking that universal culture um, for each other. So what's the legacy of the Philippine Wars? I know the, the British were awfully sniffy in 1916 or 17 because, you know, these guys just know about fighting, you know, uh, insert, colonial wars. That's all they know about, right. which is pretty funny. That's two, that's what two years of the Somme will do to you. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Um, but the uh, but that legacy, uh, as you point out in one of the, uh, the inter-chapter remarks, there are a lot of small wars that America fights in. 
throughout the first part of, before World War II. Um, and the Marines, even lo and behold, come out with a manual. Now you're talking about most of the army, but the Marines come in, you know, while it, it's the amphibious guys who are the rebels in the, in the Corps, while the, you know, the official big, big Marine is coming out with a small wars manual. Um, so what's the, what, what's the legacy? Is everyone thinking back to the Philippines? up until like 1941? No, they're not. Of course not. No, no I mean, I'd I sort of highlight three legacies and I'm sure, I'm sure Wayne has some ideas as well. The, the first legacy is that almost immediately after the war ends, the U.S. gets rid of the military that fought in the Philippines. All of those long service folks, all of that very experienced were replaced, not one for one, but in a sort of generational sense by a professionalized officer corps that was much younger, um, that was much less experienced, that was much more focused on the kind of con- conventional ground warfare that they saw as happening in uh, in Europe or in places like the Russo-Japanese War. They, the U.S. almost deliberately threw aside that um, uh, that those long uh, that long experience um, that they had gained, and so in many ways, the Marine Corps manual about small wars is is a sign that no, not everybody knows what goes on with these anymore. This universal culture has disappeared. So we've actually got to write something, um, write something about this. Uh, the, the second one um, is that the, the people on the other side learn lessons too, which is it, it's not just the U.S. learning or unlearning lessons. It's the people fighting the United States. And one of the things about Manila and a host of other conventional battles early on in the 20th century is that that powers that wanted to fight the United States or any of the Western industrialized powers learned that you shouldn't do it on an open battlefield. What I tell my students is if you want to beat LeBron James, don't play him in basketball. You got to play him in some other game. Um, And so the lesson for people like Ho Chi Minh, uh, Mao Zedong and other folks like that is don't f- try to fight conventional warfare uh, anymore because it's not going to work. Uh, you got to do something different. But they weren't. Um, but they weren't reading things then either because after all, the U.S. had defeated the Filipinos' insurgency. I mean, but the, but you got to be careful because they were. I mean, one of the things about the Filipino insurgency is that a lot of the leaders of that insurgency fled the Philippines after uh, after the war was over and settled in a whole range of places, including Paris and London mm-hmm. uh, in the 19, uh, 1900s and 1910s. And Ho Chi Minh is working as a waiter in Paris uh, under another name um, at that very moment. In fact, there's a bizarre moment where he tries to get in to see Woodrow Wilson during the Treaty of Versailles negotiations to convince him to free French Indochina. And so Ho Chi Minh is, is, sort, of, is sort of interacting not not one on one and not in great length, but he's learned he's interacting with people who were who were losing those lessons. And unless we forget, Mao Zedong was trained as a historian, um, mm-hmm. uh, which along him and Karl Marx, it, it makes for a very sort of nervous set of precedents. But so they were paying attention to those lessons um, in a way that that I don't think we think about mm-hmm. as much as we should. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yet, when we get to, to the where we've we've touched on this before, uh, you've come up with a great thing: the unlearning. We come up with this great sort of institutional continuity, institutional history, where you would expect to there be change over time, and but there's actually this reversion to a mean 
this unlearning of the previous lessons, or um, that as soon as an asymmetric conflict is over, as soon as an, you've finished an intercultural conflict, you almost, it seems, purposely um, try to forget it. And we, we don't have time to talk about, well, we could talk about how after Vietnam, uh, you have the examples from the operations manuals about how all that stuff just drops right out of the operations manuals. Um, just fascinating. Um, um, and then all it has to all be redone in 2005, 2006, as if we hadn't thought about all this stuff before, as if, you know, if you read, if you'd taken a class in military history, of course, or culture, you, you, you read all this stuff, but the army hadn't, you know, institutionally remembered. Why is this? I mean, why does it take like Anthony Wayne and David Petraeus and I guess Cretan Abrams, Cretan Abrams. I mean, we could come up with various names. Why does it take various leaders like that and, and civilians as well to sort of relearn at various times? Wayne, Wayne Lee? Well, yeah, I, I want to be careful about identifying specific generals who, who yeah, turn the story. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I, I hear you. But uh, but in general, the, the more general issue, uh, I think you're, you're you're certainly hitting on the right problem. But I think the unlearning... Uh, comes from an institutionalized military that is unhappy with outcomes that don't have clear victories. And almost every small war lacks that kind of clear victory. So it's constantly, those kinds of small wars are constantly sending the message, this experience sucks. We don't want to do this again. Um, and so let's focus our attention on things that we can do well. And also, to be fair, we wanted to, you know, we wanted to be clear in writing this book that we're not saying that conventional war isn't hard. Um, that you know, managing the competing demands of artillery and infantry and air power and now cyber and all of the very complex things in the operating environment in the modern military is a hard thing to do. And so when the army tells itself, we need to practice that hard thing. The, you know, the conventional war against a big enemy. We need to be prepared to beat Germany in, in the 1930s, or we need to be prepared to beat the Soviets in the 1980s, or we need to be prepared to beat the Chinese in the 2030s, the imaginary 2030. That is a hard mission. And so it's not hard, or it's very easy to slip into, that's what we're going to focus on. That's what we're going to spend all our time on, because we didn't like that other thing anyway. And that's cultural. Right. That's a behaviors emergent from preference, mm -hmm. not purely from calculation, not purely from a sense of this is what we need to do. It's also partly behaviors that emerge from these are things we don't want to talk about. And so we don't want to say that the military is, is sort of um, hidebound or conservative or impervious to lessen. Um, it is actually in many ways can be very innovative and forward thinking about the things it wants to be innovative and forward thinking about. Yeah. Um, and so, there, and there were perfectly good reasons for in 1790, not having a great army in the Ohio Valley. Uh, there was, no, right. there was no money. Uh, there right. was no real standing army to speak of. I took an okay. immense effort. It took three years to recover to actually build the army that should have been in there the first time in 1975. Uh, we're not, we're worried about like, thousands of Russian tanks, you know, crossing the North German plain and trying to right. avoid like nuclear annihilation, uh, going to strategic nuclear war within three or four, three days to a week. 
I mean, right. those those are pressing problems. Yes. Also. No, no, absolutely. And yeah. and that's one of the things we want to we want to be careful to say is that we don't we don't want to deny that the, the, the as you say the pressing problems that, that they were, and also that um, that they're difficult problems. Yeah. But what we want to try to convince the military of in this case or the political public is that these two challenges coexist, and the probability. The two challenges being, you know, the conventional war that you're really interested in and also some other sort of war that you're probably not interested in and don't see coming. But it's that second one is the more likely. And in, in our historical experience, it's almost, you know, in terms of numbers of wars, it's almost always that one you didn't expect yeah. against the enemy you didn't expect, whether that's the attacks on 9-11, whether it's the Indians in the woods in 1755, even though you knew they were out there in the woods, you didn't expect them to do what they did. Um, or even all of a sudden the, you know, the, the fight at Manila, those were our allies. You know, they were the one, they were fighting the Spanish and we were there to help get rid of the Spanish. And then we sort of changed our minds about what we wanted out of that. And all of a sudden, boom, we're in a war we did not expect, mm-hmm. uh, against people we d- were not prepared to fight. And so the army, and we often are talking here about the army, but whenever I say that I tend to mean the military tends to be a little schizophrenic about, um, its missions or what it thinks its next missions will be. It wants to focus on the big one and it tends to assume that the smaller ones will be handled when they come up. And very often the skill sets that you need for those smaller um, types of fights, the intercultural fights, the asymmetric fights, the skill sets are not necessarily included mm-hmm. in, in the larger mission. Let me let me jump in as well, because because it's I would also highlight that that institution comes from an American society and culture that also doesn't like these kind of messy little wars We're we're as an American culture where we love high technology. We see technological solutions to everything. We like determined beginning points and end points. We like uncomplicated victories and so World War II, you know, it has Pearl Harbor is when it starts and, and the surrender on the battleship Missouri is this great moment of triumph. As a culture, we don't like these messy little indeterminate wars that do, don't really allow us to use our technology that, that sort of trail off more than they uh, have vic- uh, victorious moments. And so the military is sort of coming from a culture that sort of pushes it to not think about these kind of wars because we as a nation don't want to get involved in them. We as a nation really don't like say, uh, those kind of conflicts either. You're saying that as a nation, we're all a bunch of post-Napoleonic military theorists. That's kind of weird. <laughs> but I mean, we're Everybody's all looking for, we're, on the inside. Yeah, we're all looking for the decisive battle. Uh, and yeah. we well, it's, it, it, it's not an unreasonable thing to say, for example, that the Gulf War was possibly the worst thing that could have happened to the national security establishment of the United States because it convinced everyone that that's the way the future was going to be. And that's how dominant we're going to be. So I was just going to add that, um, you know, so, so many of the wars in, in the late 20th century, they, they end with this, this idea of never again. At the end of Korea, there was a, a never again club that said, Never again are we going to to fight a, a war on the continent of Asia. You know, 10, 13 years later, uh, there we are in, in, in another land war on the continent of Asia. 
-hmm. Vietnam, as, as you alluded to earlier, Al, um, ends with that group of that generation of officers saying, never again are we going to, to get involved with um, a, a, an irregular type of, of conflict with an indeterminate strategy, goal ending, exit strategy. And fast forward to the, the global war on terrorism, and we have another never again response, which is where the, the army is right now mm-hmm. in saying we're, we're done with counterinsurgency. We're done with with um, insurgencies. Let's let's turn to, to great power competition and uh, large scale combat operations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, and, and the, what's what's even in some ways more interesting is seeing the way Marines have completely uh, redefined their mission and coming up with really really, I, want to, I don't know what to say, they're, uh, as a German political scientist might say, they're going full tilt boogie towards a, um, a really strange uh, idea of the company level de- uh, deployments on islands with hypersonic missiles to support the fleet. I mean, it's okay, all right, but that's a really fast turnaround. And just the speed and the distance in which they're moving from Low intensity conflict and asymmetrical warfare just shows kind of the point that we're making here. It's not that that's maybe not a good mission. It's not that it might not be a useful role, but they are going very far and very fast from where they just were. And it that's was very interesting. It is very interesting. It was amazing because this all happened while we're working on the book. Yeah. So literally, as we're writing the book, we're watching the Marines do exactly what we were talking about, which is never mind this messy counterinsurgency stuff. We're going we, full, as you said, full tilt into the anti-China. Which they were mission. getting really good at. Yeah. You know, yeah. they ha- they have they have a depth of unparalleled expertise now. Um but okay. And you're not you're not going to get promoted as a Marine with that expertise anymore. That is, they're going to look at people with great um expertise in counterinsurgency and say that's not the skill we need. So we're not going to, you know, move you up the chain. We're going to move the people who know how the hypersonic missiles work. And that's exactly how institutional knowledge gets lost. Mm -hmm. The people with it don't get promoted. They get moved out or they get sidelined and the institution forgets how to do what it's learned to do. This again, as institutional history, you can see this pattern. So like after World War II, it's all the weirdos from the OSS that go and start the Green Berets uh, to help create insurgencies but then they have the knowledge of how, if you can create an insurgency, you also know how to suppress an insurgency. You know how, um, and that's where institutional knowledge is preserved amongst those oddballs. Um, so I'm sure if we looked, uh, that we could find other niches that where oddballs have collected within institutions and done similar things. You know, probably as I said in the notes, probably in banks too. Um, <laughs> there's it's probably some sort of uh, there's some sort of sociological rule at work here. Yeah. Wayne Lee, any final summing up? Um, I, I, it's been a really good conversation. And, and uh, you know, it's it's unfortunately we, we don't have the time to talk about all the details of the Afghanistan example. Uh, yeah. And Tony's not here. But I want to emphasize how much each of these three battles, and we talk about this conclusion, leads to a set of what we – lessons is a strong word, but sort of – themes that emerge in each of these about the ways in which uh, American, the American military has responded to this problem of intercultural warfare. Uh, and in particular, 
and I think highly relevant to our thinking about Afghanistan right now, given what's happening in Afghanistan right now as the book comes out, is how do we imagine working with and alongside other governments ever in the future <laughs> and other populations? And one of the things that we hinted at in the book that's now becoming even uh, more salient is our responsibility to those in Afghanistan, those Afghans who put their lives on the line as mostly as interpreters, but also in other roles, working with us and alongside us to try to uh, shore up the Afghan government and whose lives are now at risk, at great risk, and whom we seem to not be able to solve the bureaucratic problem of getting them visas that we promised them to reside in the United States. Um, and, you know, again, institutionally, we said, yes, we're going to give you a visa. That's part of our promise. But we can't get the other institution, that is to say, the immigration system in the United States, to process their visas in any sort of timely manner. Apparently, it's a backlog of years. Um, and that's a moral responsibility generated by our willingness to, uh, to get involved in these wars and our inability to conclude them. Well, my guests today have been Wayne Lee, David Preston, and David Silby. They are the co-authors, uh, well, some of the co-authors of The Other Face of Battle, now available for Oxford University Press. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the time, Al. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook. <laughs>